Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But the dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Here ends the Old Testament reading. Father God, we have sung of your great love, your compassion, your goodness, your forgiveness. And we have told our souls to praise you. But our hearts are not always so willing to comply. So as we open your word now, we pray that you would shape our hearts to trust and obey you more and more. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take a seat. And um, it'd be great if you could turn back in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, which we're looking at this morning. Um, and as uh, you uh, do that or try that, um, it's a tiny wee book, so don't be embarrassed about using uh, the index. That's what it's there for, so there's no shame um, in using it. Having said that, uh, I want to begin this morning uh, by mentioning a memory that I'm slightly embarrassed to bring up before you. As I want to tell you about a time that I was listening to the Gardener's Quiz on Radio 4. Um, in my defense, I was round at my mum's at the time, and um, she just happened to have it on. You've got to believe me on this. Um, you know, I, so I couldn't help but overhear the final jokey last question that you often get in these kind of shows. And the question was, if you could have anyone round for tea in your garden, who would you have? And the gardeners went round one by one, until the last one said... I'd have God if I could choose anyone. I'd like God to be in my garden for tea because I'm longing to ask him some questions, like why he made green fly and what moles were created for. I think it'd be quite entertaining, quite fun to have God for tea. And as I heard that, I thought to myself, wow, that says quite a lot about our attitude 
to God these days. I mean, what a role reversal. It wasn't so long ago when everyone assumed that if they met God, it would be him that would be the one who'd be asking the questions, not them. He would be the one who'd be holding us to account for our lives. We knew that he was our judge. But we modern human beings in our arrogance have turned that totally around. And we can hardly wait to get our hands on God and sit him down asking a few tough questions about green fly and moles. And more profound questions like, why is there suffering in the world? And why do you allow AIDS, God? And why does your good book have so much to say about sex? And it's so prohibitive. And we could go on and on. There's no end to the pointed accusatory questions we'd like to ask God. Why is there no fear of God around these days? Why have we lost respect for the one who made us and gives us everything for life? That we reduce him to a rather weak, pathetic figure, cowering in the dock as we with our judges' robes on, point our fingers at him and bombard him with our questions. Well, there's a lot that I could say about that. But the short answer to that question is, this morning, that there is a lot more Jonah in us than we'd like to admit. If you're here for the first time or you've not been around uh, for a while, then you've missed a treat. As if ever there was a book in the Bible that teaches you that it's okay to chuckle in church, it's this book of Jonah. It's the story of the Lord of all heaven and earth who tells his prophet to go this way and he goes that way. It's a book with one of the greatest prayers in the Bible, and it's not prayed in a cathedral or a chapel, but inside the belly of a whale. And when the big fish sicks Jonah up, he finally embarks on his mission, picking bits of seaweed off his jacket and slicking back his hair, not with gel, but with big fish vomit. And as he reaches his destination, his only message is repent. Within 40 days, or you've had it, and they do. They repent in massive numbers. It's incredible. It's amazing. And yet, as we read on this morning in chapter 4, we find what has to be the most bizarre and bewildering thing in the entire story so far. As Jonah responds to God's amazing grace with anger and accusation. It's outrageous. So outrageous, it's almost comical. And I wish that I could say that I can't relate to Jonah. I wish I could say that we have nothing in common with him. But I can't. There is a lot more Jonah in us than we'd like to admit. So here's the first thing we have in common with him. Jonah has a problem with God. As he says to him, it's not fair. Ever said that to God? We'll take a look at Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. So the email comes in. Revival. Whole city turns to God. Massive repentance. Praise the Lord. And does Jonah respond? 
with praise to his merciful God? Does he rejoice in the success of his mission? Does he start organizing the follow-up of these new converts? Getting the Ninevites into Bible studies and and one-to-ones so that they can grow in their newfound faith. Not one bit of it. Jonah's doing his nut. But who is he angry with? It's not the Ninevites, it's God. As in his anger, Jonah prays to God. And he essentially prays, I knew you'd do that. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. I knew that all it would take is for the Ninevites just to turn on the waterworks and you, being such a great big softy, would go and just let them off. I knew it. You see, this isn't actually just a toddler tantrum that Jonah's throwing here. He, he is arguing for the logic of his rebellion. And the main weapon he uses to argue his point is what he knows about God. In fact, he actually quotes the Bible back at God as he attempts to show him why his rebellion was really a very good decision after all. When Jonah says to God in verse 2, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, he is quoting what God told Moses about himself in Exodus 34. You'll find these words throughout the Bible, and they describe to us a God of glorious grace, a God who delights to give us what we don't deserve, a God of wonderful mercy who loves to forgive, a God who is slow to anger. We give God plenty of reasons to get angry with us, but day by day, hour by hour, He patiently holds back his anger. As he is also a God who abounds in steadfast love. Love just overflows from him. He is the source of all love. He is such a great God. Such a great God. And yet, these beautiful elements of the incredible character of God, a man would actually use to defend his sin. Isn't that amazing? That Jonah says to God, this is exactly why I turned and ran away. Because I knew that this is what you're like. Folks, I can't say anything else to you, but be shocked. But be warned. For we can know a lot about God, but not really want to know God. We may have grown up in church all our lives, being taught the Bible since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. We may have hardly missed a single Sunday since then. We may now be the one teaching Sunday school or leading a midweek group. We may even work for the church and have been to theological college. But yet we can still find ourselves in just the same boat as Jonah. A good theologian, but a reluctant servant well-versed in scripture, but immature in our faith so that we will look at God and we will see him as the one whose character is flawed. Well, maybe, Ken, you might say, but this is the 21st century and our problem is not going to be with God's mercy and his love. It's much more to be 
to do with his, his judgment and, and things like hell. But I want to say, wait a moment. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think we find God's mercy just as difficult as Jonah did. It offends us. It offends our sense of justice. I mean, seriously, we don't really want the great big awful bully of the, of the day. I mean, who is that? President um, Assad of, of, of Syria or whoever it is that has got the blood of Syria on their hands. We don't want them to be treated in just the same way as Mother Teresa, do we? That doesn't seem right or fair to us. I remember a, a minister friend of, me, of mine telling me about um, uh, a woman from his congregation who was divorced from her husband. He told me that while they were married, the husband had treated this woman like a pig. And then right at the end of his life, he repented. He genuinely repented, clearly fully repented. And he died having turned to Christ for forgiveness, trusting in Christ's cross for mercy. And the wife? She just couldn't handle that. And in a moment of disarming honesty, she confessed that she had actually wanted him to go to hell because she knew that that is what he deserved. Folks, we talk a good game when it comes to mercy and love, but we are just as selective with mercy as people have ever been. I mean, just watch the next time a convicted rapist gets probation. I think Jonah's argument still resonates today. As Jonah's problem isn't really with God being merciful, but whom God is showing mercy to. There is Nineveh with all its pagan worship and its weird religions and its sexual immorality and its violence and its murder. It was famed for those things. And Jonah says, oh God, really? You are a soft touch and I've had enough with you. Let me ask you this morning, who would you rather see judged than graced? Who would you rather see punished than forgiven? Is there perhaps a place in your life where you would rather see God's judgment than God's mercy? And if you're struggling to ask, ask those, answer those questions as I bombard them at you, let me push you to answer it by asking you this. Who wouldn't you be willing to serve if God called you to? Answer that question and you, like Jonah, will find your own personal Nineveh. And once we do find our answer, God asked the same question he asked Jonah in verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Are you right to withhold your service from God and others? Well, here's the second thing we have in common with Jonah. As we find that not only does Jonah have a problem with God, God has a problem with Jonah. As he says to him, you don't care. Have a look at verse 5, will you? Jonah then went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Can you hear the teenager's bedroom door slam shut as Jonah leaves the city? If an angry outburst doesn't work, then that's what you do next. You stride off in a huff, don't you? And as Jonah sits and sulks, he looks out over the city 
hoping that God will somehow wake up and come around to his point of view. Oh, Jonah, Jonah, you were right all along. Those Ninevites, they're really the pits. They don't deserve anything. Hey, watch this. Boom. And as Jonah waits, the sun beats down on his head and God very kindly provides this plant that grows up to shelter him from the heat of the day. But just as quickly as it grows up, God also sends a worm which nibbles away at the plant so that it shrivels and withers and it dies. And Jonah starts whining again about how unfair God is. And once again, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Can you see just how outrageous Jonah's being here? He is more concerned with his own personal comfort than other salvation. Jonah cares more about plants than people. For as far as he is concerned, those Ninevites can just go to hell. If you're a Christian here this morning, there is a sting in the tail of this Bible book, isn't there? If you're a Christian, then I need to say that if we're not open to taking the message of God's coming judgment as an incredible love to anyone who we have opportunity to, then that's really what we're saying to them. You can just go to hell. I don't any of us would express it like that. But insofar as we are inward looking and just concerned about our plant and our well-being and our own agenda... And we don't really stop to care for those folks who get up our nose and get in our way. What we're saying is, you can just go to hell. And for those of us who still think there are two categories of people here on earth. The good guys who deserve the good life and and, and a ticket to heaven for the good that we've done. And the truly wicked who deserve nothing but hell. There's a clue in verse 11 as to why some people appear to be better than others as it says 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left now I'm hoping you know your right hand from your left this morning if you need any help with that later on then let me know but how did you find that out I mean you didn't just pop out of your mother's womb kind of going I am now coming out with leading with my left arm. And you didn't lie in your cock, kind of going, I'm, I'm now lying on my right arm. No, you, you actually went, goo goo gaga or something like that. And you needed to be told which was your right and your left. You see, what this means here is moral naivety, spiritual ignorance. 120,000 people who wouldn't have known how to avoid judgment unless Jonah had preached to them, unless Jonah had told them. They didn't know which way was up, and they acted that way. And it made them look like they were much further from God than other people. But it doesn't matter whether we appear to be a big sinner or a little one. If we're socially acceptable or completely antisocial, 
God still cares for each one of us the same, regardless of the privileges we may have had of growing up in a Christian country or growing up in a Christian family and have that kind of knowledge on our doorstep. And he saves each one of us in just the same way, not through our own goodness, but through his great mercy. I need to wrap up. But as you do so, let me do so with a spot of spooks. Does anyone remember the hit TV series Spooks? Um, it was this spy show, and I used to love it and watch it avidly with Fiona. Um, it's all about MI5 agents. And I remember watching one episode that got really hairy towards the end when one of the main MI5 agents had her daughter kidnapped by a terrorist. terrorist. And he was going to kill her unless she let the bomb go off. Tell you, it was pretty tense. And seeing as I've got three kids, I knew just how that woman felt about her child. So the relief when the terrorist got a couple of bullets in the chest was incredible. I found myself starting to get a little bit misty-eyed, and, and Fiona, my wife, turned to me and, and, and said, "Are you crying?" And, and myself, you know, you know, being the alpha male that I am, you know, with a reputation to maintain. Well, no, 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 I just got a bit of the sniffles. I think I got a cold coming on. Maybe it's just my hay fever. But then it hit me. That is how God feels about every one of the six billion people on this planet. Because he created every one of us. And we are his children. And he knows each one of us from the tops of our heads to the tips of our toes. So should he not be concerned about each one of us? Should he not try to save each one of us? That's what the very last book, uh, last verse in the book of Jonas asks. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? Should I not be concerned with this great city? And if our hearts beat with God's heart, don't we need to share his concerns? And if we did, where would that take us? And how would that change us? And what comfort zones and personal conveniences are limiting our discipleship now? Should not I pity Nineveh? Should I not be concerned with that great city? Now that may take us to the other side of the world. That would be amazing. But it doesn't need to. It could just take us next door to the grumpy and considerate neighbour. Or the sullen-looking teenager at the bus stop. Or the smooth-sneering colleague, work colleague at the desk opposite Or the awkward family relative. Or the embittered spouse. And if I have somehow unwittingly mentioned the person you thought of earlier when I asked you who you were unwilling to serve, don't sigh and feel burdened by that. As taking on God's concern doesn't start with a job to do, which, like Jonah, you begrudgingly carry out with a resentful and bitter heart. No, it starts with asking God to give you a heart like his. So pray that God would fill your heart with his love. And pray too for those who you currently find impossible to stomach, let alone forgive and serve. And in time, he will help you to discover a love that you didn't think yourself capable of. Should not I pity Nineveh? Should I not be concerned about that great city? The book ends with that question. 
And sadly, we never get to find out what Jonah's answer was. But God gives his answer resoundingly when Jesus hangs on a cross. God so loved the world. God was so concerned about this world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's his heart. What's ours? Let's pray. Father God, we are convicted by Jonah's heartlessness and we ask for your forgiveness for any way in which we have been heartless to others in recent months and years. Please give us something of your compassion for the lost. Give us a heart like yours that we would bear with those who we find difficult and care for others' needs and we would reach out to those who don't know of your judgment, that they too might find the mercy we've received. We pray this for your great name's sake. Amen.